0: going to be moving now uh, back to the Gospel of John. Last week we had a special message for Easter Resurrection Sunday about Jesus, Jonah, and you. If you didn't hear that, that message is available on our website. We'd love for you to get to hear what we uh, discovered in God's Word last week, but this week we're continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. So this morning we're in John chapter 18. Verses 1 through 11, there's notes available for this sermon. It's right there on the webpage. Uh, You might see it, where you can just click on it, or just go straight to our website. You can download the notes for the sermon this morning. The title for our message today is Arrested, But Not Afraid. We're going to talk about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he was arrested, but he was not afraid. John chapter 18, 1 through 11. John writes this, when Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron to where there was a garden which he had and he is which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, "'Whom do you seek?' They answered him, "'Jesus of Nazareth.' Jesus said to them, "'I am he.' Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, "'I am he,' they drew back and fell to the ground." The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given to me? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to read your holy word that you've preserved for us across the centuries, that we could read it in its truth, in its entirety, in its infallibility, its authority, its sufficiency. We're grateful for this account of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane on that night so many years ago. I pray that if we, as we study chapter 18 and hear this morning just these first 11 verses, I pray that you would allow us to learn much today so that it would encourage our hearts, strengthen our faith, and be applied in our lives. So have your way in our time together. Through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many emotions that Jesus experienced throughout his life. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. Jesus created emotions and then he lived as a human being where he could actually experience them. And because Jesus never sinned, he never had any sinful emotions. In general, emotions can be experienced to the glory of God And emotions can be experienced to the glory of man. If you are experiencing an emotion to the glory of God, then it is an act of worship. But if you are experiencing an emotion to the glory of man, then it is an act of idolatry. We don't want to be controlled by our emotions. We want to control our emotions by the power of the Spirit, And we want our emotions to glorify God. Well, why am I telling you all this? Well, I'm just making sure that you understand that if Jesus didn't experience emotion, then he would be no different than a God of wood or stone. Idols have no emotions. Idols have no feelings because idols are not real. Idols can't think and they can't talk and they can't feel. If Jesus had experienced no emotions, then he would be no different than an inanimate object. But Jesus did experience emotion because Jesus was a person. He was a real human being like you and like me. Let's take a look at some of the emotions that Jesus experienced in his lifetime. Jesus certainly experienced joy. While Jesus was referred to in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, he was also one who was known to have great joy. John chapter 15 verse 11, we looked at a few months ago, says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus not only experienced joy, but he ordered or offered rather his joy Uh, to you through obedience so that his joy would become your joy and that your joy would be made full. Jesus also experienced anger. When Jesus cleansed the temple in John 2, he showed great emotion and anger. He made a whip of cords and he drove the money changers out of the temple. He even overturned their tables His anger was not sinful, but was a righteous indignation because its root was at a concern of God's holiness and God's glory. Another time that Jesus showed anger was in the synagogue of Capernaum when the Pharisees refused to answer Jesus' questions. Mark 3 verse 5 says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved because of their hardness of heart. And we are actually commanded to experience anger, even in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You've probably heard that verse. And so we got to understand that Jesus' anger is to be our example to follow, but it is never an excuse for us to commit sinful anger. What's the difference, you might ask? Well, righteous anger is taking an offense at God's glory. Somehow God's glory has been marred or it has been mocked, while selfish anger is taking a personal offense and even maybe wanting to take revenge on someone because of something they did to you. So Jesus experienced joy, Jesus experienced anger, which is possible as long as it's righteous indignation, and on many occasions, Jesus experienced compassion for the lost and even for the downtrodden. Mark chapter 6, verse 34 says that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In the same way, we should have compassion on those who are in need around us. Jesus experienced agony. Referring to the Garden of Gethsemane that we're looking at this morning, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus also experienced an unexplainable peace And that same peace he left for us. John chapter 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace, Jesus said, I give to you. And so Jesus experienced sadness when he looked down from Jerusalem, from the Mount of Olives, and he wept with sadness because they had rejected God's offer for forgiveness. Jesus experienced pressure. He experienced trouble. He experienced turmoil. He experienced grief, and he he had deep distress and terrible suffering. Jesus also experienced love. Jesus lived by faith, and his life was full of hope. And Jesus felt rejoicing and gladness, and he was thankful. Jesus felt rest, and on more than one occasion in the scriptures, they tell us that he was refreshed. But there is one emotion that Jesus is never said to have experienced. One emotion in the Bible that Jesus never had, and that's the emotion of fear. Nowhere in the Bible was Jesus ever afraid. Jesus never got scared. Jesus was always courageous. He was always brave. Jesus was undaunted. He was indomitable. He was unflinching in the face of adversity. Jesus was spirited. He was adventurous. He was resolved. Simply put, Jesus had game. That's what I'm talking about. He was never really knocked off of his rocker. He was always ready, always prepared, and he was never afraid. We're talking today about how Jesus was arrested in the garden, but he was not afraid. In fact, fear not is the most repeated command in the Bible. It's been said that there are over 365 fear nots in the Bible. One for every day of the year. God doesn't want us to go a single day without hearing his word of comfort and peace. Isaiah 41:10 says, fear not for I am with you, Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus may have gotten tired. He may have grown weary. He may have gotten angry, as we've seen, but he was never frightened. He was never dismayed. Jesus was never afraid. Well, I don't know about you, but that kind of encourages my heart this morning to know that I can be thankful that I have a God. That I can look to when I am afraid. I have a God that I can look to that will fill my heart with peace and will fill my heart with security. And maybe right now you just need to be reminded of that as we're in lockdown, as we're going through the quarantine, as we're trying to flatten the curve of the coronavirus. Maybe there's been some times in your last few days or your last few weeks where you've been truly afraid. Can I just encourage you this morning that God's got this He holds you in his hands. He cares for you. He knows what you're going through. He sent his son to die for you. And we see in this text today that Jesus is going through a a, a really difficult trial. We're going to see how God's sovereign over all of that, and yet at the same time, it must have been a difficult time if he swept drops of blood like we read in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. But I can tell you this, that Jesus conquered every foe so that we might live confidently by faith. And so this morning, I want us to see how Jesus was arrested but he was not afraid. And we'll examine three aspects of Jesus' character in this passage so that we can be strengthened in the midst of our fears. Here's our first heading this morning. Number one, the courage of Jesus. Now, we're in the 18th chapter, which begins a new section of the Gospel of John. Chapter 1 is pretty much introductory material. Chapters 2 through 12 record our Lord's ministry in this world. Chapters 13 through 17 show Jesus alone with his disciples, preparing them for his departure. And then here we are at the end of the book. Chapters 18 to 21 are the closing section giving us the story of Christ's death and his resurrection. And as Jesus told his disciples in the upper room discourse and throughout chapters 15, 16, and 17, that his death was imminent. And now we see that it is about to happen. No sooner had Jesus finished praying the high priestly prayer of John 17 than he is arrested right here in the Garden of Gethsemane as he actually heads back to a familiar place place. In fact, if you'll look at verse 1 in your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, just says this, heading back to a familiar place. John chapter 18 verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, according to John 14, 31, they had already left the upper room, but they had not yet left Jerusalem. And most scholars believe that chapters 15, 16, and 17 kind of take place in transit as Jesus and the disciples have left the upper room. They're walking towards the outskirts of Jerusalem. And then we see here in chapter 18, verse 1, that they are actually now leaving Jerusalem Jerusalem proper. They're crossing the Kidron brook and they're entering into a garden. And so as Jesus and his disciples left the city behind, they crossed over what is more also known as the ravine of Kidron. A ravine is kind of like a wadi. We have a lot of those here in Southern California. It's like a washed out riverbed that only gets filled with water during the rainy season when a lot of water rushes down off the mountains and we have a lot more rain at that time of year. And then for the rest of the year, it kind of dries up and it's like this riverbed that you can walk through. And most of the year, it's not filled with water. Well, this is what the Kidron Ravine, the Kidron Wadi was all about. It's located just east of Jerusalem. It's between Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and the Mount of Olives. You go down just a little hill, and you come back up. I've walked through it many times. If you've been to Israel, you know exactly where the Kidron Valley is, as it's sometimes referred to. And there, as he entered into the garden, we believe this would have been a place where there were many olive trees. And the reason we believe that there were many olive trees there is the garden is referred to as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is not recorded for us here in John, but it's in a couple of the other synoptic gospels, so we know it was the Garden of Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, the word literally means olive press. With those olive trees, there would have no doubt been hundreds and thousands of olives, and it's like Jesus is now in the middle of this olive orchard. And just as the garden contained an olive press to extract olive oil from the olives olives that were grown there, Jesus was also pressed in this garden as well. And when an olive is pressed, the first oil that comes out is sometimes called the virgin olive oil. It is the most precious the most pure, and reserved for the most prestigious of uses. And Jesus was born of a virgin, and he is the first fruit, and he is the most precious of all human beings. And when he was squeezed in the Garden of Gethsemane, what came out of him was like the most expensive oil, like the most fragrant aroma, the most tender, and yet the most towering faith. Jesus went to the garden to bear his soul to his father in prayer. And while John doesn't record this particular prayer, the synoptic gospels tell us that Jesus prayed in the garden, that he took with him what we call the inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he told them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Then Jesus poured out his soul to the father and he prayed this. He said, my father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, again, that shows us part of Jesus' humanity. Remember, Jesus had two natures, fully divine, fully human. And I think just in his human aspect, it just allows us to see the honesty of this prayer. And Jesus prayed this prayer three times. And each time he would go back and find the disciples sleeping. And when Jesus had prayed it the last time he had warned them, Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation, for the spirit is is willing but the flesh is weak. Then after the third time Jesus came to them and said, Sleep and take your rest later on see the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners rise let us be going see my betrayer is at hand just kind of filling in some of the synoptic uh, gospel account to bring us up to where we are here in John now again you might ask well this is this is interesting to see Jesus kind of praying like he's broken or uh, maybe you would say that he's that he's stressed out, and I just believe that this is just showing us a little bit of Jesus's humanity. But we also see the power of his divinity because he has incredible courage. I mean, he says, "Let's rise, let us be going. The betrayer is at hand." You might ask, "Well, where does this courage that Jesus has come from? Did it come from his divine nature?" Yes, does it come from his divine character? Yes, but it also comes from prayer. Jesus prayed more than any man. And because he prayed more than any man, he was braver than any man who ever lived. You want to have courage and not be afraid during the coronavirus? You want to have courage and not be afraid at any point, any time in your life with future trials that you'll face If you want to be courageous, then you have to spend time with God in his word, in his presence, on your knees before a great and mighty God saying, God, I can't do it anymore, but you can. God, my strength is limited, but you're omnipotent. You got to spend time in prayer with your father. You got to know that he knows what's going on in your heart. You got to be in his word. You got to tell him that you're frail. But you know that he is forever mighty. And you got to tell him, I believe in you and I trust in you. The only way to get courage is to spend time with God. I hope that you're doing that during this special season. A little extra time maybe from work, a little extra time around the house. Don't waste it, but spend time in God's word, on your face before him, worshiping him, and watch your courage rise. Well, not only did Jesus head back to a familiar place here in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we also see in verses 2 and 3 that Jesus is facing betrayal from a familiar friend. That's your next blank. He's facing betrayal from a familiar friend. Look at verses 2 and 3. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So let's just look here at what's going on. Judas knows this place well. He knew about the Garden of Gethsemane because he had often met there with Jesus and the other disciples through Jesus' three, three and a half years of ministry. But unfortunately for Judas, this garden was not a place for prayer, but it was a place for betrayal. For Judas, it wasn't a place to seek the face of God. It was a place to implement the plan of Satan. For Judas, it wasn't a place to watch and pray, but it was a place to ditch Jesus and to get paid. Remember, he was gonna get paid 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. And if you remember, this was no surprise to our Lord Jesus had said in the upper room, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And of course, the disciples all wanted to know who it was. And so in John 13, 26 and 27, Jesus answered and said, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Judas was a disciple, but now that it is clear that he is no longer a disciple of Jesus, but he is now a disciple of Satan. The prophecy that was given earlier by David is now being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. If You remember, David had also been betrayed by a friend named Ahithophel, while crossing the Kidron and going up to the Mount of Olives. And now Jesus is being betrayed by his trusted friend, Judas, while crossing the Kidron in that same place. Psalm 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It happened with Ahithophel and David, and now it's happening with Judas and Jesus, both in the same place in the Kidron, right next to the Kidron Valley. Well, why? We got to ask the question, why? Why did Judas, who had been with our Lord these three plus years, why did he betray Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why. It was for the love of money. That's why Judas betrayed Jesus. He did it because he would rather have 30 pieces of silver here on earth than a home in heaven and future blessings that he would have no imagine how much value they would have. In other words, he's willing to, to sell it all for a bowl of soup like we saw Esau do in the Old Testament. It's an amazing thought that that. that Judas would be willing to sell out his soul to the devil for 30 pieces of silver. And yet that's exactly what happened. Satan had deceived Judas into thinking that money on earth was somehow more satisfying than life in heaven. And you've got to be aware that this same thing doesn't happen to you. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is though it is through craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now I'm here to tell you that none of us here today would say, "Oh, I might betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver." We all look down our noses at Judas and be like, "I can't believe he did that." And yet we know in our heart of hearts that we're all tempted with materialism every day. And we're all tempted with the things that money can buy every day. And we're all tempted at times to give up what Jesus wants for us and what he wants from us in order to somehow pursue 30 pieces of silver. And what Satan wants you to love is not the things of God, but the things of this world. And what Satan promises, he can never deliver. And all you get from craving things that Satan tempts us with is pain and heartache. Don't look to money today to rescue you from sadness. And don't look for money today to somehow rescue you from your fears. Don't look to money today to free you from your problems. Jesus is your only answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is your only hope. And so let me encourage you to never turn your back on God, the things of God, for the things of this world, namely money. And then here we see in verse 3, chapter 18, verse 3, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, from the chief priest and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas had gone and told the chief priest and the Pharisees the location of Jesus. There was this band of soldiers. The word band here in the ESV could also be translated as a cohort or a battalion. This would have been a group of about 600 Roman soldiers. Some say that it might have included 400 foot soldiers and then 200 cavalry, which of course is men on horses. So imagine that, 600 men coming to the garden, 400 foot soldiers, 200 horses with men mounted coming into the garden with lanterns and with torches and with weapons. Why so many? Well, the Jews were making sure they weren't taking any chances this time. There have been a few times they had tried to grab Jesus, and he slipped through their midst. They wanted to make sure they got their man. And even though the Passover was practiced at the time of a full moon, they still brought all these lanterns and torches just in case Jesus ran, just in case his disciples ran and tried to hide somewhere in the garden that they would be able to fan them out and find each one of them. It's interesting also to me to know that this Roman cohort is actually working in concert with the officers from the chief priest and Pharisees. They hated each other. The Pharisees hated the Romans, the Romans hated the Pharisees, and yet these two groups that hated each other are now coming together because they hated Jesus more. And so that bound them together as they have now entered into the garden, and they're going to try to destroy Jesus once and for all. And this brings us to verse 4, where we read in our next blank, taking control of a familiar situation. Verse 4 reads, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, I'm saying that this is a a familiar situation because Jesus already knew this was going to happen. We've read that so many times. John 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour has come for him to depart out of this world and to be with the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And what Jesus does next here in this account of John 18, what he does next is typical of a courageous leader. Jesus came forward. Jesus did not hide like King Saul hid in the baggage when his number was called to be the king of Israel. Jesus did not cower like like Gideon did when he wanted to kind of hide from the Midianites because he didn't think they would have victory over them. Jesus he didn't run away, he came forward. He, he, he was right there. The Bible talks about in the book of Isaiah that he set his face like a flint and that he knew that he would not ultimately be disgraced. And so he comes forward to fulfill the mission that God had sent him on. I also say that Jesus was in a familiar situation because the scribes and the Pharisees were always against Jesus. He, he knew exactly what it was like to be pursued, to be hunted, to be in the crosshairs of someone who was out to get him. In fact, Matthew 19 verse 3 says the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Matthew 22, 17 through 18 says, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Mark chapter 12 verse 13 says that they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So Jesus knew what it was like to be in a precarious situation. This time, maybe a little different with all the armed soldiers there, but he knew what it was like for them to come after them. And do you know what he did in each one of those situations when Jesus was kind of cornered by the questions of the Pharisees? In each of those situations, he usually asks a question. So he kind of flips the script on them. And then he teaches them some profound truth that embarrassed them so bad it just made them want to want to go home and never ask him another question again. That was kind of the way that he usually handled this. And that's in a sense what happens right here. Jesus takes control in the garden by asking questions, giving answers, and then even giving the orders. Bottom line, don't let others intimidate you. Joshua 1:9 says, "Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous." Do not be dismayed and do not be frightened for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I think we just got to be reminded a little bit of the courage that Jesus had and we're to follow in his footsteps, right? We're to follow in the example of Jesus. Then maybe you need to take control of the situation that you're in by being proactive in a familiar situation that you are in by running to the Lord in prayer. Maybe you need to be proactive instead of reactive. Maybe you need to exercise some courage instead of being a coward. And my encouragement to you, if that is you this morning, is that you would be willing to address the situation head on, biblically, and see God work. Maybe you are being bullied. Then you need to report that to your parents or to your teacher or to HR, the the human resources department, if it's happening to you at work, or maybe you're being verbally abused or threatened by a spouse, then I want to encourage you, you need to get help. You need to call the police. Or maybe you're just being threatened by your own fears about your health or about your finances or about your job. Can I encourage you this morning that you just got to trust in the Lord. You've got to depend on God's word to strengthen you and to encourage you in your difficulty. Because if you do nothing, you will fall into deeper despair. If you look to God and call upon his name and walk in the truth of his word, then he will not let your feet slip. I say we should be encouraged today by Jesus Christ, what he did in the garden, he had been in hard places, and he had seen hard times. And what did Jesus do? He came forward. He's not hiding in the shadows. He's coming forward, and he begins to ask questions, and then he has answers. And as he, he, he has the, the answers uh, to their question, and he's got the answer to your question today. What's ever going on in your mind, whatever you're confused about, come to Jesus, and he will help you. Well, Now that we've seen the courage of Jesus, I say let's look at number two, the second part of our outline here. Let's look at the power of Jesus. And your next blank says there, the power of proclamation, verses five and six. Then Jesus answered him, because remember they asked, uh, they 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 came in. Jesus takes uh, charge by asking the question, whom do you seek? And then verse five says, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this cohort of soldiers knew exactly who they were looking for, but they didn't know exactly what he looked like. Remember, there was no TV. There was no internet. There were no newspapers. They didn't have a a clear picture of maybe Jesus's face. So they had brought Judas with them. Judas had offered to lead them to where Jesus was. And of course, to give him that kiss of betrayal. And we've got to understand here that they're asking where Jesus is. Whom do you seek? Jesus asked. They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised as a child in Nazareth. The, The hometown of his ministry as an adult was Capernaum. And the soldiers, uh, they didn't have to even wait in a sense for Judas to kiss him on the cheek, though he did because Jesus was fearless. Jesus had already come forward. Jesus had already asked the first question. And now Jesus makes his divine proclamation when Jesus said, I am he. Now in the original language, the word he isn't there. It's just I am. Another ego, a me, in the original language, famous words of of Jesus saying, I am. The same words that Yahweh would have uttered to refer to himself in the Old Testament in Moses' burning bush experience. When Moses said, who am am I supposed to tell uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians who sent me here? God's answer was, I am who I am. In other words, the name of God in the Old Testament, the name of Yahweh is I am. That is my name. In other words, God is saying again that, uh, that he doesn't need a name to describe him. Like Abraham means father of many. Or Isaac means he will laugh. Or Jacob means seizing by the hill. God doesn't need any descriptors. God doesn't need any modifiers. God doesn't need any superlatives. He simply says, I am sent you. This means that God is totally sufficient and that he is in need of nothing. This means that God is totally independent and in need of no one. This means that God is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. He does not change and no name can adequately encompass all that he is. And in the gospel of John, Jesus used this same language to say, I am, identifying himself with God, his father. Jesus had said, as you well know, those seven times, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And so when Jesus made this proclamation here in John 18, he's saying the same thing. He's saying, I am. Whom do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. I am. That's what he's saying. I am God. And when he said it, boom. What happened? They drew back and they fell to the ground. Now imagine 600 men, soldiers, mind you, many of them possibly on horses, possibly even decked out in their armor to some degree, 600 veteran warriors. And all Jesus had to say was, I am. And it was as if the breath of God, whew, Just blew them down. They all fall to the ground. That word fell means to move rapidly in a downward direction. Well, no kidding. That's what it means to fall down, right? Just bam, straight to the ground. They were no doubt struck by the majesty of his words earlier in John seven forty five and 46, some of these same officers had been sent to apprehend Jesus. And we read that the officers came back to the chief priest, empty-handed, who said to them, well, why didn't you bring him in? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I mean, what do you do with Jesus? He's got every answer. He has every power. He has every ability to confront anything that you could think of or do. Uh, the Bible speaks repeatedly about the power of God's spoken word. It's in Genesis 1 that we read about creation. It's Psalm 33, 6. that says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. 2 Peter 3, 5 says that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Job 26, verse 13, by his wind, or breath, the heavens were made fair. Isaiah 11 verse 4, both righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. All of these verses talking about the power of the spoken word. How about Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So from all these verses, we see that God created with his words. God judges with his words. And God gives life with his words. Well, no wonder the soldiers drew back. No wonder they fell to the ground. And may we all do the same. May the proclamation of Christ being the great I am ring true in our ears this very morning. May we draw back from our own inclinations and may we draw back from our own efforts and may we fall away from our own sin, away from our guilt and away from our shame because we're falling on our faces before the risen Christ, the living God. May we heed his words this morning. May we be transformed by his sacrifice. May we be riveted by his proclamation. And his proclamation is just real simple. I am you need to see Jesus as God in the flesh. You need to understand that he's not just a man. He's the God man. He's Emmanuel, and he has the power to do whatever he wants. When we see verses 7 and 8, we then see the power of clarification. The power of proclamation, now the power of clarification, verses 7 through 8. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now I found that interesting. Jesus had been asked a second time. He asked, whom do you seek? They said again, Jesus of Nazareth. Why did Jesus ask this question a second time? Well, we don't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us, but it seems likely that Jesus has a strategy. And I think that the strategy could possibly be that now that the soldiers have said twice that they are out to get Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus has now uncovered the truth that they are not looking for anyone else. So Jesus then demands, then let these men go. And the power that Jesus had already demonstrated from the spoken word, which had knocked the soldiers on the ground, probably made them think twice about doing anything other than what Jesus said. You see, the soldiers were taking commands from their authorities, but now they're taking orders from the true authority, Jesus Christ. How ironic is that? They're in the garden, and now Jesus is telling them what to do. In fact, I would say that this whole setup was designed by Jesus and not by Judas in the first place. It was Jesus who knew what was going to happen to him. It was Jesus who acknowledged that his time had now come. It was Jesus who knew, according to Matthew 21, 46, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet So Jesus wasn't to be arrested in the midst of a crowd. I'm saying to you that Jesus set up this whole thing. He set up the timing right after the upper room discourse, right after the Lord's Supper, right after his high priestly prayer. This is the time and the place that Jesus chose to be arrested. No crowds, no riots, no fanfare, just Jesus The 11 disciples, the band of soldiers, along with some officers of the chief priests and Pharisees, and Judas, his betrayer. Isn't it interesting that when the Jews came to try to take Jesus and to make him king, as they had done even on Palm Sunday the week before, that he escaped their grasp. But now that they have come to crucify him, he makes himself totally available. Jesus is in control, not anyone else. And when God brings trials in your life, he is in full control. He is using them in your life to make you stronger. He is using them for his sovereign purposes. Trust him this morning. Lean upon him today. Learn to embrace what he is doing for his glory And so I would say by clarifying who the soldiers were after, they are now obligated to let these men go. May this be a reminder to us that Jesus is always in control. Even when it seems that everything in your life is going bad, he has a plan. Even when it doesn't make sense to us, it makes sense to him. And even when it seems to be hopeless, we can have hope in God's sovereign plan and in his power. And not only do we see Jesus's power in his proclamation, not only do we see Jesus's power in this little clarification, but we see Jesus's power verse 9 in the power of prediction. The power of prediction verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he that he had spoken Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Of course, we're referring here, Jesus is, to the high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 12, when Jesus prays, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, that was a prophecy that was fulfilled pretty quickly. He had given that prophecy a few hours earlier, and now he's saying that he's able to protect all the disciples other than the son of perdition, Judas himself, because they're protected and guarded by the power of Christ. And as believers, we can be confident this morning that whatever Jesus prays for and whatever he promises will come true. This means that you will never face a temptation that you can't endure. This means that every trial that you face is an opportunity for you to also experience God's joy in your heart and maturity in your character. This means that every repentant sinner who comes by faith will be saved. This means that while floods may come, your house is built on the rock, Jesus Christ, you will be able to withstand that flood. This means when the storm comes, we serve a God who can calm the sea. This means when your oil runs out, we serve a God who continues to give us A supply. Everything he has said, he will do. Not one word of his will fall to the ground. Jesus is our portion. Jesus grants us pardon. And Jesus predicts that where he is is where we will be. And Jesus gets it right every single time. Well, I don't know about you, but that just encourages me a little fulfillment of scripture right here in the middle of his arrest that John 17, verse 12, would be fulfilled in that very moment. Well, here we see in this passage, the courage of Jesus, where he comes forward and he addresses the soldiers, kind of takes control of the situation. We see the power of Jesus in this proclamation of the fact that he is one with God the Father. I am he. And now we see in our third heading this morning, the obedience of Jesus, verses 10 and 11. Your next blank says, Peter acts out in violence. Now, this is one of those verses that as a kid growing up, I was always like, yeah get him, Peter. You go, boy. Because it's pretty fun to read, right? Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And that servant's name was Malchus. Well, maybe I have a little bit of Peter in me. Maybe you got a little Peter in you. But you know, somehow when you read that verse, you can't help it, but just smile and just be like, oh man, that's pretty cool that Peter just did that, right? But apparently Peter thought He would take matters into his own hands. Peter was not one to be silent. He was outspoken. He was full of vigor. He had the gall to take the sword and start attacking, even though there's 600 soldiers there. And in some ways, I like that. I would rather at times have to rein someone in who has some spunk than to try to light a fire under a lazy bum who just keeps sitting on his haunches on the couch. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just need somebody who's got a little, uh, and that's what Peter has. And it's true that Peter had also pledged his life for Jesus just hours earlier. Jesus had told the disciples that they would all fall away that very night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And when Peter had heard that, he said to Jesus in Matthew 26, 33 through 35, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you. I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now again, I'm just saying, from a human stand of view, a human point of view, you have to appreciate Peter's courage. But, Unfortunately, his courage was in himself and not in God. Peter was not acting in accordance with the Lord's instructions. Instead, Peter tried to make things happen in his own power. And having a sword, Luke twenty-two thirty-eight, 38, by the way, records that the disciples had two swords. Peter drew his sword and he struck the high priest's servant. Now, I don't think Peter was trying to be fancy here by just slicing off his right ear. I think Peter went in for the kill. And whether it's because he was a fisherman instead of a swordsman or whether Malchus just docked, I'm not sure. But we do know that he cut off his right ear. And according to Luke 22:51, 51, Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This was Jesus's last miracle before the cross. Jesus certainly lived out what he preached about loving your enemy. Here is Jesus in the middle of the night, in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane, in the middle of being arrested, and he had the kindness, and he had the grace to pick up that ear and to miraculously put it back on Malchus's head. What a compassionate, healer, Jesus truly was. Remember, he's in control of this whole night. And Jesus also took the opportunity to rebuke Peter's violence. Jesus does not let his disciples solve problems using sinful tactics. Violence is never an option in resolving conflict. Use your words and make sure they are nice Right. Warren Weersby says, Peter fought the wrong enemy, he used the wrong weapon, he had the wrong motive, and he accomplished the wrong result. Well, I love how Jesus responds to Peter in Matthew 26, 52 to 54. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Jesus is saying to Peter, we don't live by violence. We don't live by the sword. If you're a killer, then you'll likely be killed. Today, I would apply that same truth with the application of saying that if you yell at others, you will likely be yelled at. And if you argue with others, you will likely be argued with. And if you treat others poorly, they will oftentimes treat you poorly. We're talking about the golden rule. And then Jesus says, don't you know that I could appeal to my father at this very moment and he would provide more than a dozen legions of angels Remember, there's 600 soldiers maybe in, in, a, in this group of, of, of a legion in the, garden, uh, in the garden that night. But Jesus could have provided 72,000 angels to come to his beckoning call. And these are angels. These aren't just Roman soldiers. Can you imagine? Uh, Jesus could have done that. And yet, he didn't want to. Jesus wanted to be arrested. That's what he's saying. He's like, Peter, put your sword away. This is my night. I'm here to be arrested so I can atone for the sins of the world. Peter, don't you get it? This is the time. So many times we need to just wait and look and patiently trust that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. You too should want to do what the Father wants you to do, even if it may come at a personal loss. It is better to be wronged than to wrong someone else. It is better to be cheated than to cheat someone else, don't respond to sin with sin of your own, right? Romans 12 talks about that. Don't take revenge. That belongs to God. Instead, address the problem head on with love and with grace and with humility. And that's what Jesus does. He addresses this problem head on with the soldiers. He addresses it head on with Judas. He addresses it head on with Peter. And he's willing to do all of this as a perfect example of how to be strong and have courage in the midst of a difficult moment. And then we see, we're talking here about the power of obedience. Verse 11, your last blank says, Jesus accepts the father's cup. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given to me? The cup which the father had given to Jesus is referring to the suffering and the death that he would experience. God would pour out his wrath upon sin and Jesus would bear that wrath for us so that we don't have to. And this is the cup of divine judgment. The drinking of a cup is often used throughout the scripture to illustrate the experiencing of suffering and sorrow. When Babylon captured Jerusalem, the city had drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling, according to Isaiah 51, 17. Jeremiah pictured God's wrath against the nations as to the pouring out of a cup in Jeremiah 25, 15 to 28. Revelation 14, 9 through 10 says that if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead, or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Well, aren't you glad this morning that Jesus drank from this cup? Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus bore the wrath of God on his body on the cross so that you could receive his mercy and his grace? Jesus would drink the cup of the father's wrath and in so doing would pay for your sins in full. As we close this morning, let's look at just a brief comparison of two gardens. All of this that we've looked at today has taken place in the garden of Gethsemane and yet the world was created in a different garden. It was called Eden. Eden was the garden of disobedience and sin. Gethsemane was the garden of obedience and submission human history began in a garden and the first sin of man was committed in that garden the first Adam disobeyed God and was cast out of the garden but the last Adam was obedient as he went into the garden of Gethsemane And in a garden, the first Adam brought sin and death to mankind. But Jesus, by his obedience, brought righteousness and life for all who trust in him. And if you want to look to one of those two gardens today to find your hope and your security, let me encourage you, don't look to Eden, but look to Gethsemane. Don't look to your past, but look to your future. Because what happened at Gethsemane, we now have a model of our own to follow, to help us overcome sin and to overcome our fears. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is our substitute. And because of his sacrifice, you can have new life in him. And new life leads to new courage. And new courage leads to the response that you need in the face of fear. A.W. Pink writes about this passage, quote, The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? What a lesson Christ teaches us here. The serpent ...was about to bruise his heel. The Gentiles were about to mock and scourge him. The Jews cry away with him. But the Savior looks beyond all the secondary causes directly to him... ...of whom and through whom were all things. How this would sweeten our bitter cups... ...if we would but receive them as from the Father's hand. It is not until we see his hand in all things... That the heart is made to rest in perfect peace. Close quote. Are you struggling today with any kind of fear over any circumstance? If so, then look to Jesus who was arrested, but who was never afraid. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of just seeing the courage of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And God, we know that we all will go through trials. We all will go through difficulty. We're going through it maybe right now in our lives. Some of us in this church may be going through a deep pressing time where we feel like that oil that's coming out is really uh, maybe not as pure as we would like for it to be. God, would you just help us to look at the power of Christ's words here that he is the Lord, that he bears our hurt, he knows our pain, and he bore it on his body on the tree so that we could have newness of life. We thank you that Jesus was filled with courage. We thank you that he was filled with power. We thank you that he was filled with obedience. And as we just contemplate all that we've learned on this day, God, I pray that you would help bring these applications home in our hearts. God, I pray again for someone who may be here this morning in our congregation who's facing great fear. We pray that you would give them great courage on this day and as they look to Christ, that they would be filled with your peace and that they would be filled with your comfort and they would be filled with your power in a way that would help them to make it another day. And we know that we can only make it by looking to Christ, our hope, by looking to Christ, our Savior, by looking to Christ who conquered it all so that we could have new life in him. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to go to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to set this up perfectly with the timing, with the people who were present, so that you would offer your life as a ransom for many, for anyone who would come this morning and turn from their sins and turn to Christ that we could be saved. And we thank you that as Christians, we never have to fear again. You are with us, you comfort us, you guide us, you give us your word you give us your promises, you give us eternal life in Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen.